Imagine this. You've been in a rock and roll band for two years. You've struggled to make it a success. And days before you were due to record your first record, you are told, without any explanation, you are being replaced. The band goes on to be the biggest sensation the world has ever seen, and you end up working in a factory. I'm talking about Pete Best, the good-looking drummer who played with the Beatles before they were famous. I have his story on the 174th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. Are you ready for some rock and roll? Or at least a rock and roll story? I hope so, but first, of course, how about the weather report? Spring is finally here! Of course, with that comes yard work, but spring is finally here. It's nice out here in Chicago. So, I've had the story in my notes for a long time. In fact, I originally planned on doing three stories. Pete Best, Jimmy Nickel, who played drums with the Beatles while Ringo was sick, and Beatle roadie and friend of the band Mel Evans, who died very sadly. I soon realized that it was much too long, so I cut the Mel Evans story, and then I realized the Pete Best story was getting so long that Jimmy had to go. I still plan on doing these other two stories at a later date, because they both still fascinate me. You see, I've been a lifelong Beatles fan, and not just of their music, though I do think it's fantastic, but the whole story. I think the Beatles' history is a a fascinating one. But one part of the story I never really looked into was Pete Best. Then after I saw a documentary on Hulu called The Beatles, made on Merseyside from 2018, a documentary that I really enjoyed, I decided it was time to look into Mr. Best. So why don't you pour yourself a hot cup of joe and I'll tell you about the man who was almost, well, you know. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Hello. See these little fellas? They're the Beatles. Inflatable Beatles. They're yours, the four of them, for just two dollars and two wrappers from Dove or Lux or Lightboy. So, you'll find the Beatles at your supermarket in this display. Here's uh, John, Ringo, George, and Paul. Uh, For full details, visit this display at your supermarket and have the Beatles, all, all four of them, for your very own. How can one not feel a bit sorry for Pete Best? On the eve of the Beatles' huge success, days away from their first recording session, he was kicked out of the band. And for years, he watched these men he had played with for two years go on to unbelievable success. In the documentary The Beatles Anthology, the story is told this way. They went to audition for George Martin at EMI, And when they were done, George said the band was fine, but when they come back to record, he was going to provide a professional drummer. 
he didn't think Pete was good enough. Paul, John, and George thought it was time to replace Pete with the best drummer in Liverpool, Ringo Starr. They had played with Ringo a few times back in Hamburg when Pete couldn't make it, and things always seemed to click when he sat in. So they asked Ringo, Ringo accepted, and the rest is history. But I tend to think there's a little bit more to it than that. He was born Randolph Peter Scatland on the 24th of November 1941 in Delhi, India. His father was Marine Engineer Donald Peter Scatland, who died during World War II. His mother, Alice Mona Shaw, was training to become a doctor in the service of the Red Cross when she met Johnny Best. Best came from a family of sports promoters in Liverpool who ran Liverpool Stadium. He was a commissioned officer in India serving as a physical training instructor during World War II. Mona and Johnny married in 1944, and by 1945, they were living in Liverpool, England. At around age 11 or 12, Pete took an interest in music, so his mother, who everybody called Mona, bought him a drum kit. Sometime in 1960, Pete became friends with Neil Aspinall, the man who would later become the Beatles' road manager. Now, as a side story here... Apparently, the 19-year-old Neil was living in the best household when he began to have an affair with the 39-year-old Mona. Neil fathered a child with her, Pete's half-brother, Vincent Best. The fact that Neil was the father was kept secret for many years. Anyway, the basement of the Best household was turned into a rock club, the Caspach Coffee Club. Pete's band, the Blackjacks, would play there. When Mona asked Pete if he knew of any other bands that could play... He suggested the Quarrymen. This was a newly formed version of the Quarrymen, as the previous incarnation of the band had broken up some time earlier. It was really the beginning of the band we know as the Beatles. At the time, the band was John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Kevin Brown. Kevin Brown was a guitarist. The band didn't yet have a drummer. So not only did they play there one day a week, but they also helped Mona finish painting the club painting the walls with spiders, dragons, rainbows, and stars. The building, which is a museum these days, still has the Aztec-inspired ceiling that John painted and the rainbow ceiling that Paul did. The band played a series of seven Saturday night engagements for 15 shillings per night during August to October 1959. The important part was they saw Pete play the drums. In May of 1960, Ken Brown was no longer in the band, and a man named Tony Moore was playing drums. Artist Stu Sutcliffe was now the bass player. At this time, they were backing up singer Johnny Gentle as the Silver Beatles on tour through promoter Alan Williams. Eventually, Moore quit the band because, as he said, he had enough of John Lennon. He went back to being a truck driver. Just about this time, Alan Williams realized that clubs in Hamburg, Germany, had a need for American rock and roll. Of course, American bands were totally out of the question, but there were many bands in Liverpool that fit the bill. Williams offered Rory Storm and the Hurricanes the gig, but they turned it down, and then Jerry and the Pacemakers, who also said no. So finally, he went to the Beatles. The problem with the Beatles was, at this point, they still didn't have a drummer, which was required for this gig. Then Paul remembered a man from the Cashbah who was a steady drummer, playing bass on all four beats, that really pushed the rhythm. He was Pete Best, 
known to the girls in Liverpool as being mean, moody, and magnificent. Paul thought he would be good for the group, so he made the call, much to Pete's surprise. Just days before they were set to go, they had Pete audition at a place called the Blue Angel Nightclub. Pete played about six numbers with a band before the others, with Alan Williams, gathered together in a corner to talk about it. When they returned, they offered Pete the job. Apparently, the whole audition ruse was just so Pete wouldn't ask for more money. As far as Pete was concerned, an equal split was just fine. He just needed to go ask his mom. Once in the band, Mona began taking a special interest in the group. Two days later, they began the long trip to Hamburg in a small van, equipment piled on top. It was in Hamburg that the Beatles really began to take shape. They learned their craft as a powerful band. They had two stints in Hamburg. The first ended when it was discovered that George Harrison was underage, so they were deported. Stuart Sutcliffe, who was now in love with Astrid Kircher, decided to stay in Hamburg to continue his painting. It was at this point that Paul became the bass player. After some time back in Liverpool, when George was old enough, the band returned to Hamburg. It was on their second trip that they learned the shocking news that Sutcliffe had died from a brain hemorrhage. Pete Best said this was the only time he saw John Lennon cry. In the documentary, The Beatles, made on the Mercy side from 2018, Pete talks very fondly of John Lennon and how much of a fan of John's he was. This is surprising considering some of the things that John said of Pete later on. Skipping ahead to Brian Epstein, he first became aware of the band when a boy came into his record store and asked for a copy of My Bonnie by Tony Sheridan and the Beatles. The Beatles had recorded this tune back in Hamburg when they were hired to be Sheridan's backup band. Brian took an interest in the band and sought them out. By then they were back in Liverpool playing the Cavern and had quite a large local following, especially Pete, who seemed to attract far more girls than the other three. They got an audition with Decca on New Year's Day 1962. They played 15 songs in less than an hour, and all to the benefit of Pete years later, were recorded. Eventually, Decca rejected the Beatles, saying guitar groups are on their way out and the Beatles have no future in show business. After being turned down by about every record company in London, out of desperation, they auditioned for George Martin at EMI. George Martin decided to take a chance on the band. But after hearing the band play Love Me Do, Martin decided he didn't like the way the drums sounded and told Epstein that when they record, he was going to provide them with a session drummer. Using session musicians in the studio was quite common in those days, maybe even still today. Martin wasn't suggesting firing Pete. He even said, I never suggested that Pete must go. All I said was that for the purposes of the Beatles' first record, I would rather use a session man. I decided that drums, which are really the backbone of a good rock group, didn't give the boys enough support. Martin's intention was never to get Pete fired. He thought Pete seemed to be the most sellable commodity as far as looks went. It was a surprise to him when he learned that Pete had been dropped. Author and broadcaster Spencer Lye, who wrote quite a few books on the Beatles, said of Pete's work, 
If you hear the version of Love Me Do, for whatever reason, Pete sounds like he's banging a couple of binlins in the record. He just had a bad day. Epstein said that he agonized over the decision. He wrote in his book, Cellarful of Noise, that George Martin was not too happy about Pete's drumming, and the Beatles, both in Hamburg and at home, had decided that his beat was wrong for their music. I wasn't sure about that. I was not anxious to change the membership of the Beatles at this time when they were developing as personalities. So I tried to talk to Pete about his drumming without hurting his feelings, and at the same time I asked the Beatles to leave the group as it was. They, however, had decided that sooner or later they wanted Pete to leave. They thought him too conventional to be a Beatle, and though he was friendly with John, he was not with Paul or George. One night in September, the three of them approached me and said, We want Pete out and Ringo in. I decided that if the group were to remain happy, Pete must go, and I knew that I would have to do it quickly and decisively. What Brian wrote in his autobiography might have only been a partial truth. There was something else. You see, he was having a problem with Mona Best, Pete's mom. Joe Flannery, a business associate of Brian's and the booking manager for the Beatles from 1962 to 1963, said, We had a lot of trouble with Pete's mom, Mona Best. Brian phoned me and said, I'm going to have to let the band go. Maybe you're interested. Joe asked why, and Brian said, I can't get over Mrs. Best. She's overpowering. Then Joe told Brian, It might be better to get rid of Mrs. Best by getting rid of Pete. Spencer Lye, a man who wrote a number of books on the early Beatles, said, She was constantly ringing up Brian and saying, What are you going to do for Pete's band? And Brian didn't like that at all. Now, back in the Hamburg days, there were times when Pete didn't make it to the gig and Ringo filled in. The others thought that something felt really good with Ringo keeping the beat. George Harrison was quoted as saying, Pete kept being sick and not showing up for gigs. I was quite responsible for stirring things up. I conspired to get Ringo in for good. I talked to Paul and John until they came around to the idea. Paul McCartney said, if he wasn't up to the mark, then there was no other choice. Paul further explained on the Howard Stern show, The truth is, we just fell in love with Ringo's drumming. Ringo was in another band, we had Pete. But we used to go see this band play and say, God, that drummer's good. Pete said it happened like this. After a gig at the Cavern, Brian approached him and said he wanted to see him in his office in the morning. Pete didn't think much about it. I was pretty naive. I thought everything was going to be hunky-dory, and I could tell right away that Brian was very agitated. After a few minutes making small talk, Brian told him that he had some bad news. He said that Ringo was going to replace him as the Beatles' drummer. Pete was shell-shocked. He never saw it coming. Just that quick, after two years, he was done. Pete said the only reason he was ever given was that he wasn't a good enough drummer but Pete always doubted this, saying that he's every bit as good of a drummer, if not better, than Ringo. In an interview on TV with Mona and Pete Best, shortly after his departure, Mona, who did most of the talking, said, From the point of clash of personalities, well, probably that may be it, because Peter was, did have a terrific fan club compared to the others. 
And Pete also comments that he and Ringo were good mates, though he hadn't talked to Ringo since he was replaced. There has been a lot of speculation over the years that it was all about jealousy. Pete always seemed to be the focus of attention, especially with the girls in the press. In fact, there was a Mercy Beat article that raved about Pete without even mentioning the other three. About this, John said, The myth built up over the years that he was great and Paul was jealous of him because he was pretty and all that crap. They didn't get on that much together, but it was partly because Pete was a bit slow. He was a harmless guy, but he was not quick. All of us had quick minds, but he never picked up on that. The reason why he got into the group in the first place was because we had to have a drummer to get to Hamburg. We were always going to dump him when we could find a decent drummer, but by the time we got back from Germany, we had trained him to keep a stick going up and down. Four in the bar, but he couldn't do much else. And he looked nice, and the girls liked him, so that was all right. We were cowards when we sacked him. We made Brian do it, but if we told him to his face, that would have been nastier. It probably would have ended in a fight. The thing about John, and this is just my opinion, was that at some point I think he got fed up with the questions about Pete, and maybe there was a bit of guilt there as well, so he responded with questions about Pete by getting nastier and nastier. Maybe this negative attitude was more of a defense thing than anything else. Many have pointed out that Best never really fit into the Beatles' personalities. Not the way that Ringo's did. Ringo's was a perfect fit for the other three. Cynthia Lennon pointed out in her book that while Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison usually spent their offstage time together in Hamburg and Liverpool, writing songs or socializing, Best generally went off alone. This left Best on the outside as he was not privy to many of the group's experiences, references, or in-jokes. Whatever the reason, Pete was gone and, well, we know what happened to the Fab Four. For Pete, he had some tough years. During the height of Beatlemania, Pete Best attempted suicide, but his mother Mona and his brother Rory prevented him from completing it. Best stated that after the intervention, they gave me the most sensible talking to I've ever had in my life. This resulted in him changing his outlook. In an interview on the David Letterman show in 1982, Pete said, They caused me a lot of hardship, grief, financial embarrassment, but I persevered with my own lifestyle. After spending a while attempting to get his own band going, he left the music business in 1968. At one point, he sued the other Beatles for defamation of character, a suit that was settled out of court. Then, in 1995, the surviving Beatles created a documentary called The Beatles Anthology. In it, they used several songs that Pete played drums on, including the Decca Session recordings. In an interview on ClassicRockBands.com, Joe Flannery said, Paul McCartney, out of the blue, phoned Pete Best and said, Pete, I know we haven't spoken for a long time, but you know I've recorded and done the oratorio. I think you should know that it's done very well and you are due some royalties. Now, shall I give it to the government or do you want it? Pete asked, how much would it be? Paul said, eight million pounds. Pete said, my God, I'll have it. Flannery goes on to say that that's equal to about 16 million in U.S. dollars. At the end of the documentary, The Beatles, made on the Mercy side, Pete finishes his interview by saying, My life since has been absolutely incredible. 
You know, I still have a great band that tours the world. I'm still alive and still healthy. Still go for a pint. Still enjoying myself. Have a great family, you know. The wife and I have been married for 50-odd years. Grandchildren. I have a great life. Hope it continues. His band, called the Pete Best Band, still plays a lot of Beatle tunes. When asked why, he said, because they're bloody good songs. And that would be the end of the story, except for the fact that 10 songs from the new Beatles anthology CD feature Pete on drums. So not only is Pete Best a Beatle once again, the royalties from those songs will at last bring him some of the Beatles' riches, estimated at between 10 and $100 million. I've got to take it in my stride. Uh, you know, if all of it comes to fruition and all these speculation of, you know, millionaire, multi-millionaire, billionaire, if it does, I'll be happy, okay? Um, regardless of that, it's still giving me a lot of enjoyment, and that's, that's what's counting at the present moment. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go. I'll have to admit now that as far as Ringo's drumming goes, I've always been a huge fan. I mean it. I've been in many arguments with people who try to downplay his drumming ability. Yeah, he wasn't, you know, Neil Peart or Buddy Rich, but I think his drumming was perfect for the Beatles' sound and there were times in the past where I put on headphones and just listened to what Ringo was doing, and I find it fantastic. And I also don't believe that if Pete had stayed with the band, it would have been the same. I think having those four different personalities and the humor they projected was the perfect combination for the Beatles. Pete didn't have a very outgoing personality, and, and in many early interviews, he comes off as, well, rather dull. Ringo was the final puzzle piece that led to the Beatles' success. I mean, Pete seems like a good guy, but I couldn't imagine him doing the film, such as A Hard Day's Night or Help, or any of that stuff. But you never know. You never know what might have been. Maybe it would have been better? Who knows? Personally, I don't think so, but who am I to say? One part I didn't touch on was the hoo-ha that happened after Ringo joined the band. I'm sure you've heard the stories of people at their first gig with Ringo yelling, Ringo never, Pete Best forever, and holding up signs, and George Harrison getting punched in the face and getting a black eye. Neil Aspinall, who would join the Beatles as road manager and, and pretty much take care of the Beatles' legacy until he died, actually quit the band for a short time, or threatened to quit the band, because he was good friends with Pete. In fact, Ringo says for a while he wouldn't help Ringo set up his drum kit, but that didn't last for long, and eventually they became good friends. So I think I've gone on for far too long, so why don't we get to the ending credits? You know, we at SciCon could use a little help in financing our shows. If you want to help out, you know, be one of the good people, then why don't you support us by visiting SciCon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And of course, a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of SciCon, why not go over to the SciCon website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find so many amazing podcasts at SciCon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. 
your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then why don't you go to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. Those really help me out. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, as always, a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You folks make me feel warm inside. I'll be back in two weeks with another thrilling story. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life feels a change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee.